beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus came to preach. We just read that in verse 38 of chapter 1 of Mark. That's what he came for. He, he did miracles, he did healings, and they were amazing, but they were secondary. They were to confirm the main thing, and the main thing was his message. And what was his message? Well, look at verse 14 of our chapter. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming what? The gospel of God. And saying what? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What was his message? That the kingdom of God was here. That Satan is no longer in charge. That God is reclaiming his territory. That means that Jesus in his ministry is binding the strong man. He's casting out the demons. And we, we read that repeatedly throughout the ministry of our Lord and in the verses before our text. And in this kingdom of God that Christ proclaims, things are very different. Under the cruel dominion of Satan, man walks in darkness and hatred and in broken relationships and the child of wrath has broken communion with God and broken communion with other people. But in the kingdom of God, there is light and there is love. And the child of God has fellowship with God and fellowship with the other children of God. Now, Jesus doesn't just proclaim the imminence of the kingdom of God, that it's near, that it's coming. But he also explains how to get in. And the way to get from the darkness to the light is through repenting and believing. It's the only way. Do you know why that's the only way? Well, because when a sinner repents, when he confesses his sin and trusts in Christ to forgive him, then the Bible says, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's the key. If rebellious sinners are to enter the kingdom of God, then sin has to be dealt with. Because the wages of sin is death. And death and sin kills, it, it destroys it pollutes. Sin is fatal and foul and putrid and ugly and dark. And so are all the effects and all the consequences and all the fallout of sin. One of the most horrible, foul, putrid, ugly, and fatal effects of sin is this. Sin destroys relationships. It corrodes relationships like acid. It destroys our relationship with God and it destroys our relationship with God's other children. And Jesus came to change that. He came preaching a kingdom where there is love instead of hate, selflessness instead of selfishness, holiness instead of wickedness, faithfulness instead of betrayal, hope instead of despair, life instead of death, communion instead of brokenness. 
Now, when our text happens, the Lord Jesus has just come down the mountain after he has preached the Sermon on the Mount. Mark doesn't mention the Sermon on the Mount, but if you look in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 8, you see that what's happening in our text happens just right after the Sermon on the Mount. He's just finished preaching a whole sermon on what life is like in the kingdom of God. And now, he takes a moment to authenticate his message with a powerful sign. What is he doing here? He's showing people, see, look, this is what I'm talking about. Now remember, Jesus came to preach. He didn't come to do signs and wonders. We we, we read that in in this chapter. He says, let's go to, to other places that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You look at verse 38. People are looking for him. People are gathering together. They're looking for signs and wonders and miracles. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to somewhere else because I came here to preach. That's my, that's my goal. So when the Lord Jesus tells us that that's his main thing, preaching, then we ought to pay attention when he takes the time to do a miracle. When he takes the time to do a miraculous healing, we need to sit up and pay attention because what is Jesus teaching us through this miracle? What aspects of his preaching is he illustrating with this sign? And so I have the privilege of proclaiming to you the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in our text this morning under the following theme, Jesus heals the leper to bring him back into fellowship with God and his people. So what does Jesus do? He heals the leper, and why does he do it? To restore fellowship with God and his people. And we'll see two things in our text this morning, what the man requests and how Jesus responds, and secondly, what Jesus commands and how the man responds. So what the man requests and how Jesus responds. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Now leprosy, as the Bible uh, describes it, is, is a bit broader than the the disease we know today as leprosy, it's, uh, it's, it's any, it can refer to a, a range of skin conditions. But the, the, the leprosy that's described in the Bible the, the, is, a, is a terrible disease, but the worst thing about it is the consequences of this disease, because it meant that you were banned from communion with God and his people. You had to be outside of the communion of saints. You were banned from the worship services. You were an outcast, and everywhere you went, you had to yell out, unclean, unclean, because you didn't want to get other people unclean so they couldn't go to worship because they'd been in contact with you. So being a leper in the time of Jesus would be kind of like being very, very, very sick with the worst and most virulent variation of COVID and walking into a room coughing and spitting. People are going to be running away from you. They don't want to be anywhere near you. That's what it was like to be a leper. So he shouldn't be coming to Jesus. That's the last thing he should be doing. That's against all the rules and all the protocols. So why does he do it? Well, he, and what does he want? He wants to be clean. Now think about that. Look, look what he's asking Jesus. If you will, you can make me clean. He's not saying, Lord Jesus, you can heal me. You can get rid of my disease. That's not the main thing for this guy. His overwhelming desire is to be clean. And what does that mean? He says, Lord, 
You can make it so I can be in communion with you, so I can come to worship, so I can be with your people in the communion of saints. That's what I want. That's what I want more than physical health. I want to be clean. And he's imploring, literally, the, the word in the text means that he's just, he's just kneeling down. He's falling on his face, says Luke in chapter 5, when he describes this scene. He's just prostrating himself before Jesus. He's begging. And he says, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will. He's not demanding anything. He's begging. Now that's the difference between religions that pass themselves off as Christian and the religion of the Bible. The difference is that in the Bible, God's will is sovereign. And in all other religions, man-made and false religions, man's will is sovereign. There are a lot of variations, false variations of Christianity, which we're taught and we're told that we need to decree to God. We need to tell God, this is the way I want things. And, and I've, I've heard preachers uh, decreeing and telling God, you must do this. I remember a, a family that came into the church in Recife many years ago, and they had been involved with one of these groups, and the, the little girl often had these terrible earaches, and she'd be in pain throughout the entire night. And her, her, her ear was in terrible distress, and, and the father, following the teaching of the, the sect that he was in, would spend hours screaming and decreeing and saying, God, I command you to take away this, this evil and take away this pain. And you can imagine what that did to the poor little girl who was already hurting enough. And she would often, she told me later when they came to faith in Christ, she told me later that she would say, Daddy, the pain's gone. So he would stop screaming. That's not what's happening here. This man understands that it is all dependent on God's sovereign grace and God's sovereign will. He wants to be clean, not healed in the first place. He humbles himself before Jesus, God in the flesh. He recognizes God's sovereignty, and he throws himself on God's mercy. Now, this man teaches us a lot. We so easily want to be healed. We want God to fix our problems. We want God to fix our money problems and our health problems and our relationship problems. And we often demand that. God, why are these things wrong in my life? What did I do to deserve this? Why do you fix things? This is too hard. This is too much to bear. And so often when we're dealing with brokenness in our lives. We stay shallow. We stay on the surface. We don't get to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is this. What is coming between me and God? What is getting in the way of me worshiping God and having fellowship with him and his people? That's what I want dealt with. Brothers and sisters, we need our sin to be dealt with. We need cleansing. Is that what you want? More than anything else to be cleansed from your sins. 
You know, the only way we're going to want that is if we understand how foul and how ugly our sin is and what it does to us. It doesn't matter if it's something we've done in the past or, and never confessed or if it's something we're doing right now and have not repented of. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's looking at uh, and being addicted to porn on the internet or carrying on a, a relationship at work or online or neglecting your wife or disrespecting your husband or the resentment and the anger and the hatred in your heart or the gossiping or the bullying at school or at work, whatever it is. If you have sin in your life that you have not dealt with, that you have not repented of, then you and I, we need to take a lesson from this leper. We need to understand that sin is not just something we've done, but it's something that is a part of us. It's clinging to us like leprosy. And like leprosy, it spreads its deathly grip and it tries, it seeks to destroy you, to break you down. And it also destroys your relationships between you and God, between you and the other children of God. And this is so serious. That we, when we continue to live in unconfessed sin, not repented of sin, not hated sin, not fought against sin, then we are neither in communion with God nor with the church. Even if the sin is hidden, even if on the outside everything looks okay, even if the church doesn't know about it. And so the gospel says, come to Christ. Throw aside every other priority and focus with a laser focus on your need to seek forgiveness, to seek the restoration of your relationship with God and his children, his church, to humble yourself before God. That's what it looks like in the Christian life, brothers and sisters, when we ask for the forgiveness of our sins. Look at this man. He wants this more than anything in the world. He needs this more than anything in the world. He throws himself down and he worships and he prostrates himself and he begs for it. And how do we ask for the forgiveness of our sins? How often do we not put it in our prayers as the last throwaway line? Because we just remember it the last minute. Oh, and we pray all this in the forgiveness of our sins. Amen. Let's eat. Prayers for forgiveness ought not to be more to be mere rituals and rote sayings. We need to bow before God's sovereign mercy. We need to know that we can't make it right. But God, you can. Your cleansing and your restoration, brothers and sisters, our cleansing and our restoration all depends on his sovereign grace. And that's how the leper comes to Christ with his request. And then see how Jesus responds to that. He's moved with pity says verse 41. And the word there is a word that has to do with the very insides of a person, deep in his insides. It's kind of the idea of gut-wrenching. There's a very, very powerful emotion in Jesus because leprosy represents everything that he did not create us to be. When Jesus is confronted with sin and its consequences, he recoils. 
Because he didn't make us to be like that. He didn't make us to suffer like that. He didn't make us to be oppressed like that. And so he puts forth his hand and touches him. Now that's not part of the miracle. Jesus doesn't need to touch the guy to make him whole. Fake miracle workers love to go through all kinds of motions and and impressive uh, things. But Jesus is simply showing what Isaiah prophesied about him, that he took upon himself our infirmities. Jesus touches that man, and by the Hebrew, by the ritual law, that makes him unclean. That makes him unworthy to come into the presence of God. He takes upon himself the pollution and the foulness and the horror of our uncleanness. And this comes to a climax at the cross, where Jesus is rejected like a leper by both heaven and earth. He is crucified outside the camp. He is lifted up between heaven and earth and rejected by both. And because of that coming cross, Jesus can say what he says now. He says, I will. In other words, yes, that is my will. Be clean. And it's when he says it that it happens. It is by the powerful word of God, the Son of God, Christ in the, in the flesh. That's what does the miracle. So even the miracle itself spotlights the power and the centrality of God's living word. Brother, sister, when we come to Christ in repentance and confession, he says the same thing. We say, Lord, make me clean. If, if you will, if it is your will, you can do that. You can fix what's, what's most wrong with me. And Jesus says, I will. Be clean. He says it not based on on what he will do in the future, but he says it based on what he has done already. My child, 2,000 years ago, I already bore your sin on the cross. And so many years ago at your baptism, I touched you and I declared to you the gospel of the forgiveness of your sins. You are clean. And so you can come to me Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Brother, sister, there's nothing that is too foul, nothing that is too shameful. There's no sin too great for Jesus to place his hand on your life and take all the pollution and all the filth and all the guilt and all the shame of your sin and my sin on himself. And to wash us in his precious blood. And to say, I will be clean. So we've seen what the man requested and how Jesus responded. And now we look at what Jesus commands and how the man responds. Because Jesus doesn't just offer cleansing, but he gives instructions. And with a very stern charge, verse 43 says, a very strong warning. The, the word is really kind of neat because the, the Greek word has to do with the, the snorting of a, of a horse. It's a very powerful emotion. So Jesus is being very, very, very intense here in his exhortation and his warning. He says, don't speak about it to anyone. But go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Why? Why does the Lord be so strong in saying, don't tell anybody? 
Well, you notice that he said the same thing to the demons. The demons knew who he was. He said, be quiet. Because it's not yet the time for Jesus to be revealed as the Messiah. He, does, he wants people following him with a hunger and thirst for gospel preaching and not for all the secondary signs and wonders. But there's another reason why Jesus tells this guy to be quiet. He says, show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded, for a proof to them, for a testimony to them. Why does he say that? For a testimony to the priest. Well, when you were healed from leprosy, you had to go to the temple, and the priest had to kind of evaluate you. You had to go through a week-long process. You had to bring sacrifices at the beginning and sacrifices at the end, and there had to be various evaluations of your health to see if really you were actually cured. And the Lord Jesus wants that to happen without the priest knowing the backstory. He wants these priests to see with their own eyes and testify with their own mouths to the power of what he has done without having uh, preconceived notions about it beforehand because they know that he has done it. So as a testimony to them, he wants them to confirm and authenticate the miracle showing that he really is clean. The man's response is to not listen. And we, we kind of feel for him because we can understand that if you've spent a long time being out of communion with God and his people, and you're suddenly miraculously healed. It's a hard thing to be quiet about. And so he goes out, and he just can't stop talking about it. His whole life has been turned upside down by Jesus, and he's just going to tell somebody. He's going to tell somebody what Jesus did for him. And he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. Is that good, or is that bad? We feel a strong compulsion to praise the man. It's good to tell people about Jesus, right? The trouble is, is that God in the flesh told this man to be quiet. And he didn't listen. So if we're spreading the word about Jesus in a way which God has forbidden, there's a problem. Those things don't add up. Jesus said, don't tell anyone. He said it powerfully. He said it intensely. And the Bible says, I want obedience rather than sacrifice. Jesus says, if you love me, you keep my commands. So we learn that sometimes disobedience might be real pious. Sometimes we do things which God has said, don't do that. We're like, well, look how Christian I am. And look how this is wonderful for the, for the advance of the kingdom of God. And the Bible says, no. Disobedience might be real pious, but it's still disobedience. Well-meant, well-intentioned disobedience is still disobedience. It causes great damage. It works against the gospel and against the progress of the kingdom of God. And look what it does to Jesus. He can't even go into the towns anymore. He has to be out there in the desolate places because this man uh, causes trouble for Jesus' ministry because of his disobedience. Well, what did Jesus command? He commanded him two things. Show yourself to the priest and bring the sacrifice that Moses commanded. What does that have to do with us? What do we learn from that, from that for us? Well, showing to the priest means that the miracle of Christ's intervention in our life must be authenticated. It's got to be obvious to the world around us what Jesus has done for us. Is it obvious? Is it clear? Can people tell? in your life, that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. When you're on the construction site and a woman walks by on the road and the 
Men who are not in Christ are looking at her and whistling at her. How are you different? When you're in the workplace and people are using bad language or doing wrong things that are immoral or illegal, how are you different? When you're looking at YouTube, how are you different than your neighbor who's not a believer? When we're choosing our entertainment on a Friday night, how are we different? How do we stick out? How many broken relationships are we in because we refuse to humble ourselves and seek reconciliation? Do we stick out as different, as holy, as pure, as as people who have been cleansed? Or do we just look like the other sinners that happen to go to one building one day per week? And that's the main difference. Brother and sister, when we continue in unholiness, in selfishness, and carelessness, and resentment, in godlessness, we are denying the power and the work of Christ. And then like the leper in his disobedience, we are actively working against Christ's church-gathering work. We are actively working against the expansion of Christ's kingdom. Do you understand the seriousness, brother and sister? If we continue in unconfessed and unrepentant sin, then we not only put our own eternal welfare in danger, but we are actively turning others off the gospel. We are living proof that the gospel doesn't work, that the gospel is a lie, that the gospel is all about pretending and making things look good on the outside. Do you want to give your testimony about Jesus? Do you want to tell somebody what Jesus did for you? Then begin by showing it. The most powerful testimony to the message of the gospel is a radically transformed life, a life of radical holiness. That's hard work. It takes a lot of prayer, a lot of longing, a lot of striving, a lot of falling on our knees and crying out to God and asking for forgiveness and renewal and sanctification. It's a lot easier to talk. And sometimes we who are the best talkers about the Bible and the faith and the intricacies of right doctrine, we have the hardest time showing it in our lives in the fruit of the Spirit and in personal holiness. When outsiders come to the church, And they see us nursing pet sins and and grudges and tolerating unholy living. When they see us talking the talk but not walking the walk, then they're turned away. They're turned off. They see no clear official confirmation that we truly have been cleansed. And consequently, they begin to doubt the truth of the gospel message, which proclaims cleansing and sanctification for sinners. The Bible repeatedly emphasizes that one of the main contributions of the church member in the church's Great Commission is to show forth the power of the gospel in a changed life. That's what Peter tells, for instance, godly wives who have unbelieving husbands. He says, you know, don't sit there talking all the time. There's time to talk, yes, but the main thing needs to be your godly behavior. Win him. In the first place, by being a Christian, not by talking about being a Christian. So when we live a godly life, 
we're proclaiming to all the world that the message of the church, the gospel, is true and it's powerful and it's efficacious. It works. So we need to proclaim, to, to show forth the truth of the gospel. And secondly, we need to bring the sacrifice. What does that mean for us? Well, we don't bring mosaic sacrifices. We don't bring pigeons and doves and sheep. But Jesus calls on us, too, to bring a sacrifice which testifies to our cleansing. And you remember Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Jesus has made me clean. Jesus has restored me into communion with God and communion with God's people. He's changed filth into cleansing, hate into love, despair into hope, and darkness into light. And now I need to bring the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is me. Everything I am, everything I have, everything I think, everything I do, every relationship that I cultivate, I do for him. Every job that I do, for him. Every word I speak is for him. Every choice I make is for him. Every moment of entertainment is for his glory. Every dollar that I earn is for him. Every thought which passes through my mind, every plan that I make in my life, all is for him. That's the sacrifice. What happens when we bring the sacrifice? And we stick out. We are sticking out like a sore thumb in this dark, rebellious, selfish, polluted, and ungodly world. And we will promote the powerful advance of Christ's kingdom on earth. The church proclaims the gospel of the kingdom, the good news that Christ cleanses sinners, that God reconciles sinners to himself and to each other. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And your transformed life, brother and sister, is the miracle that confirms it. Your transformed life says, yes, it is true. The gospel is true. Your life is a living sacrifice to God. And it is a powerful testimony to the eternal truth of the gospel message. Your holy life is the authenticating miracle which declares the gospel to be true. And so we can sum up the whole sermon, and we can sum up our daily life before God in three lines. First of all, our plea, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. If you will, cleanse me. And then Jesus, my child, I will be clean. And then our response, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Take my life and let it be dedicated, Lord, to thee. Amen.